0: Chapter 1. The End of Welfare as We Know It Personal and Public Standards In our personal lives, most of us realize that the world doesn't owe us a living. Whatever our individual circumstances, we know that we are responsible for doing what it takes to get the things we want in life. We're responsible for earning a living that provides for both current and future needs. We're responsible not just for doing our jobs day by day, but for finding a job in the first place and for acquiring the knowledge and skills it takes to find a job. We're responsible, not just for paying current expenses like rent and groceries, but for saving some portion of our income for long-term needs like retirement, and for unexpected ones like an incapacitating illness. We're responsible, not just for getting the kids on the school bus in the morning, but for making sure they are learning what they will need to know in life and were responsible for choosing to bear children in the first place, knowing the long-term commitment it involves and the investment of time and money we might have devoted to other pursuits. Yet in our public lives, we have accepted an obligation to provide food, shelter, jobs, education, pensions, medical care, child support, and other goods to every member of society. The premise of the welfare state, the sprawling network of programs for transferring wealth from taxpayers to recipients, is that the world does owe us a living. If someone is unable or unwilling to support himself, the government will provide food stamps, housing subsidies, and possibly cash assistance as well. If someone is laid off, the government will provide unemployment compensation. If an unmarried teenager has a baby she can't support, she is eligible for cash benefits, Medicaid, and other poverty programs. If someone fails to save for retirement, the Social Security system provides a pension and Medicare covers the doctor's bills. In those and other ways, the welfare state confers entitlements to goods independent of the process of earning them. It elevates needs and downplays responsibility. The result is a public morality at odds with our personal standards. In our personal lives, we know that people sometimes suffer through no fault of their own. We recognize a place in life for generosity and mutual aid. If a stranger is heard in the street, we call the ambulance and see to his needs. If a neighbor's house burns down, we do what we can to help, but we choose to do so voluntarily weighing such needs against the other demands on our resources, and we expect some measure of gratitude in recognition of our help. If a stranger appeared at our door demanding a place to live or help with his medical bills or a contribution to his retirement fund or to his kid's education, if he demanded it as a matter of right, regardless of whether we were willing and able to help and without any obligation to thank us for helping, we would take offense we would recognize it as a monumental act of presumption. Yet in our public life we accept such demands as a matter of course. The beneficiaries of social welfare programs and those who speak on their behalf put forward their needs as claims on the public purse, and thus on the productive members of society who pay taxes. Those claims are not always successful. They may be opposed for economic reasons. They may fail to win political support but they are rarely challenged as illegitimate the operating assumption in debates about social welfare programs is that the needs of recipients take precedence over the rights of producers those with the ability to produce are obliged to serve while those with needs are entitled to make demands the result once again is a public morality at odds with our private standards Federal budget deficits and comparable fiscal problems at the state level have come to seem intractable because food stamps, Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare, public housing, unemployment compensation, and other benefits have been provided as entitlements. Casting those benefits as rights has bred intransigence among recipients and thus made the prospect of benefit cuts all the more difficult for legislators to contemplate publicly when the massachusetts legislature voted in early nineteen ninety five to cut welfare benefits and require that recipients work for example welfare recipients marched through the state house protesting the new restrictions the spirit of entitlement is not peculiar to poverty programs in new york city students dressed in black held a mock funeral march from battery park to city hall to protest cuts in federal spending on student loans and grants speaking of social security norman ornstein a political scientist at the american enterprise institute observed talk to almost any audience of elderly people and it becomes clear that the widespread public view